1: and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and on today's episode we're going to be talking about some Americans in action this past weekend. To do so, I'm joined by a fella who already has all the knowledge about Americans in MLS, so I figured it only makes sense to have him know everything about Americans abroad as well. It's Joe Lowry. Hi Joe.
2: <laughs> Oh, Taylor, you are holding me to a high standard. I will do my best to clear that hurdle.
1: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Just knowing everything about every American playing soccer anywhere at any given time. I feel like that's a fair assignment for you. Very doable. Yeah, no, I, I I got it. I got it, uh, Well, let's simplify your task a little bit. We are going to incorporate some MLS players going forward. Today, it's all about Americans abroad because it was an eventful weekend for some, less so for others. There were several players who did not feature, likely because they're returning to their clubs from international duty. So that would be Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Luca De La Torre, Matthew Hoppe, and Shaq Moore. Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna also did not play, still dealing with injuries, and we have the sad news uh, from Roger Gonzalez uh, that Gio Reyna is likely to be out for the November World Cup qualifiers due to uh, injury or the slowness of his recovery from that injury. So that is at time of recording, as far as I know, still just a report. We don't know that officially, but that seems to be the way it's trending,
2: Joe. No bueno, Taylor. No, no bueno a- at all. I did not think that these two injuries... I'll, I'll explain this to Polisic here in this conversation. I didn't yeah. think that these two guys would be out for as long as they were, right? I'm thinking about Polisic specifically. I remember in that game, he goes down injured and he tries to come back on and play against Honduras. And obviously that didn't go well. He didn't look like he was ready to play. But I didn't think these were going to be as extreme as they were. Tuchel's come out and said stuff about Polisic and how his recoveries had some setbacks along the way. And so both of these guys, if they're out for November, and we don't know that for sure, but if they are, those are big misses, man. Those are Those are real absences. And the U.S. was... Good enough in the October window that we spent mm-hmm. plenty of time talking about. They were good enough to get some solid results in those games, obviously, with, with a mixed performance in the middle of that window. But lacking depth up top is a bit of a challenge. And I think the U.S. is in a position now where they're lacking a bit of depth in those spots and missing a couple of those key players that also happen to play those spots in yeah. polisic and Reyna. That's not ideal
1: it's not and it's it's not even just depth it's like name brand depth at that because <laughs> yeah. if you are mexico and you're looking at a potential starting 11 for the united states and how to deal with it having pulisic and reina on that on that roster as potential threats i think changes your calculation a little bit and so it'll be uh, a difficult task for Greg Berhalter to continue to find ways to get results, or find ways to get results, depending on your perspective, uh, with the attacking options he has. And then for Mexico, I think that probably just builds a little bit more confidence. Now I'm going into like maybe it builds too much confidence, and it's it's actually a strength. That's a fun <laughs> way to spin that one. But I am I am sad just because it it, it often feels like we don't ever get to have. That full first choice 11 out there for the United States. And maybe that's a common thing with most national teams. But it feels especially the case with the United States that we haven't yet gotten that full combination of our best players in the best possible positions and then ideally playing the best possible soccer.
2: It's a bummer, right? I mean, I I don't know how much... I don't know how much we have to to sacrifice to the injury gods of soccer to get all these guys on the field at the same time, but seeing a lineup, and maybe it's happened before, I don't have all the lineup permutations in front of me, but seeing Pulisic and Reyna and Adams and McKinney and Musa all together would bring me great joy. And I I don't think that's happened off the top of my head. But it's hard. And and the depth that the U.S. has is important. I know we just cited a lack of depth, at least to a degree up front. And I do stand by that. But the depth overall that this group has is somewhat encouraging. We saw that depth really falter against Panama. But I I think there's quality (laughs) enough to overcome some of these absences. We just saw that in the last window. But this November window against Mexico and Jamaica... It's it's a tough one, right? It's only two games, yes, yeah, so that is an advantage. But Mexico at home is a very challenging game. Home for the U.S., that game will be in Cincinnati. And then flying to Jamaica, who will likely have more of their top players than they did last time around, even though those guys still haven't had a great chance to gel. It's a tough two-game turnaround. Uh, and, and the U.S. is going to need to be at their best if they want to get some some strong results from these games. Yeah, because the Mexico game... We don't really need to talk about that one. I think
1: everybody knows that that will be a difficult game. But the Jamaica game also has that that threatening feel of a team that we overlook. Because I would beat them easily. It won't be a big deal. Let's focus all of our energy on Mexico. And if you don't get that result against Mexico and then you still go in too confident or maybe not mentally prepared to be as sharp as you need to be against Jamaica, there could be problems there. So I think we're talking about the injuries. We're talking about some potential issues. But we should talk about some positives because we've got – with everything we've already talked about, plenty of Americans doing plenty of things uh abroad this past weekend. Joe, we're going to change up the format a little bit. We still have five players that we're going to talk about uh, in detail. I've sort of watched footage of two. You've watched footage of two. We have one in common. But first, we're going to do some quick hits, some quick updates. I'm going to give Joe the very basic... Uh, report. He's going to say thumbs up, thumbs down, or thumbs in between. We can have more of a conversation if we want or not. And we'll start with Chris Richards, who came on in the 36 minute for Hoffenheim in their 5 0 win over
2: Colm. Thumbs up. Baby thumbs up. He was not supposed to play in this game, I don't believe. An injury mm-hmm. to a, a center back got him on the field in the first half. It's an impressive feat playing uh, over with the U.S. national team in the United States against uh, against Costa Rica and then flying across the Atlantic and playing a Bundesliga game. But yeah, thumbs up because I think this shows how much trust Hoffenheim have in Richards. And, and it, obviously that lines with our trust in him as well because he has been... A, a bright center back prospect and will continue to evolve as a player. So thumbs up, Taylor. Thumbs up. I like it. Let's see if that positivity continues when we when we mention Jesse Marsh,
1: whose RB Leipzig team drew 1-1 with Freiburg. We should note uh, a, a solid Freiburg team who uh, are not, it's not as though this is a Freiburg team that are bottom of the table and Jesse Marsh was able unable to get a result against a struggling team, but still not getting the full three points that maybe we and RB Leipzig supporters would like to see.
2: Yeah, I've got thumbs down on this one. Mm. It, or Thumbs in the, in the middle, middle to down, somewhere in that thumbing range. Down. I mean, the three points need to start coming, right? The Champions League results haven't been good for Leipzig. The league results haven't been very good for Leipzig. There are problems with the way this team is trying to, to approach getting results, and it's not happening right now. One point is better than no points, duh. But yeah. Uh, yeah, not the result that I think a lot of folks have been hoping to see from this Leipzig team. I would say I'm going to put this one in thumbs undecided. I'll
1: be the deciding vote here. Because this is a Freiburg team checking the table who are currently fourth. Yeah. uh, And a Leipzig team who are not. And so you want Leipzig to get that result. That's how you start kind of clawing points back to make it into that top four in the Bundesliga. Uh, But at the same time... It's not as though this was a, a minnow that they should have easily uh, breezed past, and it was on the road, so maybe extenuating circumstances, but we would like to see uh, stronger results there sooner rather than later. What about with John Brooks, Joe? John Brooks started for Wolfsburg in their
2: 2-0 loss to uh, Union Berlin. Any time that John Brooks starts and goes 90, okay, that's that's too general, but most times John Brooks starts and goes 90 <laughs> minutes, I'm going to give him a thumbs up because his body has held up. Thumbs up, John Brooks. Way to, way to play in that game, buddy. Wow. All right. I like it. (laughs) He's just so injury-prone, right? I mean, he doesn't play in a whole lot of games, and so the fact that he's getting on the field, he has missed time recently. The fact that he's getting on the field and playing a full 90, I think, is an encouraging sign.
1: All right. All right. Uh, And I I guess I would ask you more about that scoreline. But neither one of us watching that game probably means I should not. Instead, I'll ask you <laughs> about Anthony Robinson. Came off the bench and scored for Fulham in a 4-1 win over QPR. I'll just go ahead and put that in the positive column
2: right now. Oh, absolutely. And even double thumbs up I'm going to give Anthony Robinson. He and his uh, and his wife or his partner are expecting a child, and he did the expecting dad celebration after he scored in this game. So double thumbs up for you, Anthony Robinson.
1: Was it the ball into the shirt or was it the thumb suck?
2: Uh, I think he did both, actually, Ooh, Taylor. Right. Really, really thorough, that Anthony. That means it's twins. That's
1: medical science right there.
2: <laughs> uh, Conrad De La Fuente started for Marseille in their 4 1 win over Lorient. I'm giving thumbs up. We haven't seen Conrad in the lineup as much recently for Jorge Sampali at Marseille, so the fact that he's back in for this one, I think, is great. Mark McKenzie started for Genk in a 2 0 loss. Thumbs up, I guess, to Thumbs Medium. I don't know. I don't expect that Mark McKenzie absolutely dominated this game, and I still have questions about his game in general, but getting the start in, in playing, I think, is, is a positive.
1: I'm going to say Thumbs Unknown will be the middle column. So we've got two in there. Uh, Let's move to DeAndre Yedlin starting for Galatasaray in their 1-0 win. Same category. Thumbs Unknown. DeAndre, uh, hopefully you played well, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's a shot at Galatasaray. I'm looking <laughs> up right now to see who they beat. One 0 win over Konyaspor. I don't think Konyaspor particularly go to particularly high on the table. I think they're mid table right now. So yeah, I think thumbs undecided is fair. Uh, that takes us to Reggie Cannon starting for Boavista in their four 0 loss to Rio Ave in the Portuguese Cup. Uh, the loss, not great. The start should be more positive, but I think given. The continued uncertainty in my mind about Reggie Cannon at Boavista, I'm leaning towards thumbs down, but Joe, I leave it to
2: you. I'm thumbs down on the result and thumbs down on this whole Boavista situation in general, yeah. but I, I'm big thumbs up. My thumb has just grown and I'm, I'm giving it to Reggie Cannon because uh, he hasn't played a whole lot for them. I, this, I, I believe this actually was his first start of the season. I could be mistaken on that, but he's barely played since the Gold Cup. And so getting a chance to actually see minutes and yeah. see the field, that's a good thing.
1: All right. I like that idea. And I like the idea that maybe that means he's playing his way back into contention and into some some good graces. We'll see what happens. Uh Gianluca Busio starting for Venezia in their one 0 win over Venezia, excuse me, in their one 0 win over Fiorentina on Monday.
2: Big time thumbs up. Busio I watched some clips of him in this game and I thought he played pretty well. Not perfect, but he did have the MLS assist for Venezia's goal over Fiorentina. And this was a huge result for them in Serie A. Thumbs up for you, Gianluca. All right, Joe. Random question.
1: If you have the full-strength starting 11 for the United States as you see it at your disposal, but the caveat is that you have to play Gianluca Busio somewhere, hmm. where is the best position for Busio in the U.S. national team, do you think?
2: Eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah, if, if everybody's healthy and available, you. I don't think you can take Tyler Adams off the field. And while I, I think I like Buccio more as a six— Beralta, it seems like, sees him as an eight, at least on a part-time basis, and I think you take out McKenny or Musa before you take out Adams.
1: All right. And then if Adams were to get injured or we needed to try something else,
2: you'd be okay with seeing Gianluca Busio starting as the number six? I would be. And maybe this is not a good thing to say, given how bad Kellen Acosta was against (laughs) Panama. I... I Depending on the opponent, if it is a Mexico type of team, I'm not putting Busio in there because I don't think he can cover the ground. But against a a team that might be slightly worse and the U.S. is going to have more of the ball, I'd have no problem putting Busio in there.
1: All right. I I, I like that explanation. Final one uh, before we get into some more in-depth answers would be Matt Miazga, a player who seems to have completely fallen off the national team radar. I'm still not entirely sure why. Maybe that's a thing that we can delve deeper on next week. But for now, started uh, in Alves' 1-0 loss to Real Batiste.
2: Matt Miosga getting minutes, I'm counting as a thumbs up. The yep. loss is unfortunate, but, I mean, Batiste is a quality team, and the fact that Miazka's actually been playing in La Liga, I think is is good. It doesn't magically make him a better player, but staying active and staying involved and testing himself at a pretty high level is only going to do good things for his future in this pool. Running through the, the list of players that have been called up, that have been in squads and have not been in,
1: if I told you, I'm not saying this happened, but, Joe, if I told you there was one player who had had a falling out with Burhalter. He accused him, uh, him of cheating in Mario Kart, and that led to a huge <laughs> falling out, and now he wasn't in the conversation. I, it's Matt Miazga, right? Like, that is the player that maybe should
2: be more in the conversations, but hasn't been. Is that, is that just me? Uh, it, it could be. I'm just distracted now thinking of what Mario Kart character Matt Miazga would use. I'm thinking Wario. either Wario... He uses Wario. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh, we're on the same page. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was thinking Wario or Waluigi, but yeah, we're definitely going Wario. Um so Taylor, I don't know that I have an answer to your question, but congrats, Matt Miyazka, for for being a Wario guy, I guess. Yeah, I think I think so. I'm glad that we both landed on Wario. <laughs> and I feel like that's the
1: appropriate point to uh to end this quick hit roundup. Joe, let's get into some more detail with a few uh of the players who were in action this past weekend. Let's take a break though before we do. Oh, you
2: tease.
1: All right, Joe, I did not mean for that to be the tease that it was, uh, but I promise we will now get into it. First, uh, a few more things I wanted to bring up randomly that don't have anything. No, let's talk about Joe <laughs> Uh Started for Gladbach in their 1-1 draw with uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo's Stuttgart. Joe, we both watched, I- I'm going to say, all of his touches, I'm guessing, if we went the Y-Scout route.
2: Uh, what did you make of Joe Scally in that 1-1 draw? I thought he was good, Taylor. Holy yep. cow! I thought he was good, a lot yep. better than I thought he was going to be. And it, it seems awesome, like yeah. I might have more reservations about Scally. I might have had. I, I still do have some, and we'll talk about that later. Seems like I have might have more questions about him than Gladbach's managerial staff do, right? Scally's been a regular starter for Gladbach that season, this season, at only 18 years old, which is incredibly impressive. He's already played over 700 minutes this year across eight Bundesliga games. On Saturday, he started on the right side of defense and shifted over to the left side once uh, Luka Nets came off in the 66th minute. And then Scali came off about 15 minutes later in this game. But I thought he was very good in this game, Taylor. And, and the biggest thing that I liked, and maybe you noticed this too, is Scally just looked up to speed. It yep. looked like he was thinking quickly. He, he didn't perfect every single moment, every single play, but it looked like he was thinking quickly. Quickly and and using his feet quickly to actually impact the game. And he didn't look lost in any way out there. And I I think he's grown already in those eight Bundesliga games, and I'm excited to see how much more he can grow if this is the level he's at right now.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of the time when I'm evaluating young players playing in Europe and especially playing in the top flight like the Bundesliga, there are sort of stages to it. The first stage is, hey, they got minutes, that's great. Then it becomes, as we've talked about many times, they didn't stand out in a negative way, which means they're kind of doing the simple things. And then it becomes, you start to notice them more for just making solid decisions, not getting dispossessed, not getting embarrassed. And then there's the next step, and I think that's where I, I would put Joe Scally, which is, he is starting to stand out a little bit. He is starting to get attention because I think he's doing things that are entirely rooted in having confidence and having the belief that you're part of that team and in this game the way he was so willing to play forward to drive forward with the ball to take people on and it seemed like to do multiple things on the defensive side simultaneously that sometimes he was stepping but still covering space in behind sometimes he was tracking a run while also marking somebody else I just thought it was, a, it was a varied performance, but in a good way, meaning that he had lots of different
2: responsibilities and assignments, and it felt like for the most part he was able to handle that. I'm with you, Taylor. The thing, the thing looking specifically at, at some of the technical skill he showed in this game, we talked about speed of play and, and his versatility a little bit and the different things he was doing in this game. One of those different things that's maybe slightly irregular that he was doing is he played a ton of left-footed balls playing as a right-sided defender in this game. He was out on the touchline on the right wing or, or tucked inside in the half-space some as well. But Scally, who is a right-footed player, yes, was using is. his left foot a lot. There was a left-footed ball inside the first 10 minutes. Just really simple. But I took note of that as I was watching this game because I thought, well, maybe maybe he'll do a few more. And he did, in fact, do a few more. Taylor, one clip that I sent to you, and I know you saw this as well, came in the 12th minute. And Scali's positioned inside in the final third in the half space and plays this left-footed ball with with his left foot to a teammate. The pass is just behind the guy he's trying to find. But the speed of play, again, I come back to that, the, the quick thinking to play that first-touch left-footed ball is really nice, I think. And then he gets the ball back after the, 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 the not an incomplete pass, but after Gladbach lose the ball, sort of. Scally gets the ball back and then tries to play a left-footed chip to a teammate towards the, the back portion of the six-yard box. I wasn't expecting this level of comfort with his left foot. I know he's played on the left some for Gladbach this season. Again, it happened in this game. But there were so many sequences, at least four, Three real highlight moments, I think, from Scout that came with his left foot while playing in this game. I, I was very pleasantly surprised by how impactful he was with his weak foot, Taylor. Uh, no arguments here, because we had the listener question recently about like
1: why aren't there more uh, two-footed players? Why does it seem like we have so many one-foot dominant players? And we had different explanations for that, but part of it for me was just that you play based on what is most comfortable, and then you deal with like the the weaker foot when you have to in order to sort of find those gaps or play unexpected balls. And I thought that was kind of what Scally was doing on the day, that in the opening minutes— Uh, I felt like I wrote down in my notes like extremely right-footed and then crossed that out as the game went on because he is dominant with the right foot certainly and I think prefers to be on the right foot. But what was interesting to me is as soon as the situation requires him to play with the left, I didn't see as much of that hesitation you sometimes see there wasn't that inclination to maybe hit the Travella instead of trying to play it with his left foot, using the outside of his right instead of the inside of his left. And for the most part, I thought he just sort of, interchanged well and made those decisions which foot to use and how pretty effectively pretty often. But then just I think that ties into the self-belief that we saw. And I did feel like he was willing to, under pressure, try to dribble people or try to take the ball into space to kind of accelerate into the open space and then slow down and evaluate what comes next. And those little moments – showed how important he is to the way Gladbach want to attack. And for a U.S. team that oftentimes wants to use those fullbacks to get into good attacking
2: positions, a lot of boxes started to get ticked for me, Joe. I'm I'm right there with you, Taylor. One one player that stood out to me in in relation to Scally in this game, from watching Scally in this game, is Serginho Dest, and they are very different types of fullbacks. Mm-hmm. Dest is much more tricky and dribbly, and Scally will dribble, but I, I see him a bit more as a straight line player. Not entirely, he will do some some creative things in the final third, but they're they're very different in that regard. Dest has a lot more flair to him, but there was there's one moment again. I keep coming back to this left footedness and, and the confidence that comes with that. To your point, Taylor. There's a moment in the 54th minute uh, where Scally gets on the ball near midfield wide on the right side of the field. And Stuttgart start to close him down. And as that happened, Scally uses his inside foot, which is his left foot as he's on the right side. So the left foot is on the inside. He opens up and he plays this left footed pass into Mbolo, who's the number nine in this game for Gladbach. Who Mbolo had dropped in with a center back on his back. Taylor, I don't know many fullbacks that think of a pass like this with their inside foot on that side the only player to go back to the Dest example that I brought up the only player that I could really come, like bring to mind immediately in the U.S. pool certainly that would do this was Dest when he played on the left for Ajax but in that case it was Dest's dominant foot that he was using to play that inside pass so it was Dest playing left back using his right foot in this case, it's Scalley playing right back using his left foot, which is both similar and entirely different to what Dest is doing. I'm not saying Scalley can hit this pass every single day and, and really break games open with something like this, but to have a player with that weak footness in their arsenal, I think is a is a huge asset to a team when they have the ball. I agree. I think we should take a
1: moment to talk about some things we would like to see improve, yes, or some areas yes, of concern, agreed. because. There's one that I initially had as a negative, and the more I watched it, the more I'm less certain it is, and more of just a thing to keep an eye on. Uh Late in the first half, uh, Scally gets into a 1v1 with yep. uh, Chris Furick, Uh and it wasn't great. He kind of stands him up, I think thinks he's slowing him down, but gives him that sort of uh, – the space to dribble to the end line and then cut back. Uh, and – Initially, I, I I wrote down you know one v one defending always a concern uh, when you've got those kind of attacking fullbacks. Watching it again, I realized that he wasn't playing really as a fullback. He's playing as a right wing back because uh, Gladbach in that back three in a three four three shape means that he is splitting those responsibilities of having to pop out and be involved in the press and be further up, but still protect the space behind him. And that is an obvious area to attack if you are an opponent playing against a back three with a three center backs stay mostly central. The wing backs step up. Now you've got gaps on either side. And that's exactly where, uh, where Stuttgart attacked. Then Scali has to sprint back 20 yards to be in position to even slow that play down. And so I think it's a distinction worth noting because it's not that he failed to track a run then had to get back in and then ended up losing a foot race. It's sort of he's doing what's asked of him, but then has to improvise on defense because other things are also not working, basically. But even there, maybe he can do better in the 1v1, but it's still more of a let's see how he does going forward versus a that remains a concern for me.
2: Sure. And and based off of some of the 1v1 defensive actions we've seen from Scali this season, He's had good moments. I'm thinking back to that Bayern Munich game towards the start. Maybe that was their very first game of the season. Scally defended fairly well in this game. He was not perfect in that game, excuse me. He was not perfect against Bayern and against Leroy Sané and Thomas Müller. But he had a lot of nice moments in that game. So the jury, for me at least, is still a bit out on Scally's 1v1 defending. I think it's slightly inconsistent. It was inconsistent in this game. That moment you're calling out Taylor in the 38th minute. I do think Scali could have yeah. and maybe should have done better. Uh, but still, I, I do take your point about some of the systemic issues around him. That 1v1 defending is certainly a thing to keep an eye on. The other thing that I'd like to mention, Taylor, is becoming a little bit more dangerous in the final third. There's this Agreed. moment in yeah. in the first half where Scali gets on the ball and he takes on an opponent 1v1 on the right side of the field because he's playing as a right wing back in that moment. And he just can't create much separation. He doesn't really ever get away from the, the Stuttgart player that's tracking him and dealing with him. And he ends up just putting a cross in and has it blocked out for a corner. So getting a corner from that situation is not the worst result, but I think you would like to see your outside backs be a bit more creative in how they're able to attack and, and attack one v one specifically. So that's something that I'll be watching for from Scali going forward as
0: well.
1: I think that's that that's a really good point to drive home, Joe, because I I do I would like to see him in the next uh, roster. I think he he looked solid enough here and elsewhere that he should be in that conversation. Um. But I would like to see him look as sort of adventurous on the ball in attacking positions as he does defensively. Defensively, it, he he doesn't seem out of place. He doesn't seem like he is a young player. He seems like a veteran who's been there and knows to close down and when to step and put in that tackle. And maybe sometimes you got to be a little bit more aggressive than others in knowing when to make that physical contact and just let the attacker know you're there versus standing off and, and sort of making them make the first move. I thought he balanced that well that I'm with you, that the attacking, there wasn't that next-level ability, there wasn't that like really dangerous bending cross in after he gets himself in some space or takes somebody on and then like uh, plays in a teammate on an overlap. I think there can be a bit more variety to the way he attacks, but overall, uh, I would be very comfortable having Joe Scally in the next U.S. camp. Joe, uh, I'm assuming you agree, but would love to know if that's the case.
2: I do agree. I want there to see go. him in November. I don't see... I don't really see a downside to bringing Scally over some of the other fullbacks that were on the, the bottom end of the October roster, right? Yeah, there, there's a slight experience deficit that Scally's at, and, and Baralto kind of talked about that in his roster press conference when the, the roster for October dropped. But the way he's playing right now and the level of opponent that he's consistently playing against, I think you get him in there.
1: All right, and I'm assuming we would have him uh, rostered at right back then? Yeah,
2: I mean, you bring Purple him left. as this flex fullback, right? A guy yeah. who can play right back or left back. He, I think he, he's a, certainly a more natural right back, but you feel fairly comfortable with him at either one of those spots, and that's another massive reason to bring him, and he's much more comfortable playing as a left back than, say, DeAndre Edlin is in, in this group. Any other things you wanted
1: to talk about when it comes to Joe Scali and his performance in Gladbox 1-1 draw with Stuttgart?
2: I don't, I don't think so, Taylor. Maybe right. one other point of caution, I guess, is Stuttgart is not the most uh, solid defensive team, shall we yeah. say. And so there yeah. is that caveat when you look at the opponent, or at least we should be looking at the opponent and their quality. So not to fully detract from anything we've talked about, but just something, again, to pay attention to as we watch more of Scally going forward. So the
1: reason why I ask you if you're okay with him being one of those fullbacks is because the next player we're going to talk about, we're going to jump around a little bit. Joe, I would like to talk a bit more about Serginho Dest, Oh yeah, that I know we both watched because we watched the Barcelona game, their 3-1 win over Valencia for the weekend review. Yunus Musa involved in that one, came off the bench, and I talked at length in the weekend review about how the third goal, I didn't feel, was as much his fault. So we don't need to talk about that. Let's instead talk about Serginho Dest, who initially was listed
2: as starting at right back and was very much not a right back in this one, Joe. (laughs) He was not. It was fun to see him do something that I think he hasn't really done at club level since he was at Ajax and in their youth system, maybe with Young Ajax or, or for the U19 team, starting higher up that right side. I don't know... That's that's his best spot, but he certainly can get a job done, and I thought he had some nice moments in this game at right wing, Taylor. I thought he did, too, and I don't think this will be
1: the case. I don't foresee any of what I am sort of going to advocate for on this show happening, but I am not opposed to Joe Scally starting it right back, and I am not opposed if we do have Christian Pulisic injured, if we do have Gio Reyna injured. So maybe seeing what Serginho Dest can do on that right wing. And that goes against the idea of we're building on what we've been doing previously at national team level, how we have this sort of blueprint now that we can go from moving forward. But I would say that Scali looked very good. I wouldn't mind seeing him at fullback. And I thought Dest did a lot of things that we want to see him do in that right wing spot, Uh, starting with the defensive side of things. When Barca were defending, it was more of a 4-3-3 shape. And it was Dest wide on the right, but still hustling back when the situation required and not being sort of lazy. Sometimes you'll see that with players, maybe not at world-class level, but at some levels you'll see, oh, I'm an attacker now? Well, then I don't have to do as much work. And I still saw Sergio Dest bombing backwards to get into defensive positions and good defensive positions at that. But then I saw him being even more adventurous on the attack because he knew he had people behind him. And so there's moments, uh, Joe, I don't think I sent you the clip, uh, which is very helpful, but I did film the clip. I can send it to you, (laughs) uh, where he basically gets the ball out wide. uh, Sergio Roberto plays it to Dest. Dest does the thing where it's like it's coming to him. I think he has his back to the field. He's facing the touchline or the sideline, and he faints like he's going to take the ball back uh, in the direction it came, but then lets it roll past him drives the other way, plays the ball in to, I believe it's Memphis. Memphis lays it off to Dest, Dest beats another like uh, opponent to it, gets around that player, and then plays it wide. And it's just this quick combination, but it's an awareness of how to attack and how to transition into attack effectively, efficiently, quickly, and Dest does all those things, and then really helps just kind of create this overload. Barcelona end up getting a shot on the far side from, I think, on Soufati. But that sort of attacking awareness and presence... Is a thing that sometimes I think has to be shackled slightly, or that Greg Berhalter tries to shackle to make sure that there's still the defensive side uh, secure for the United States. And I just wonder if maybe letting Dest function as a right winger at times, especially if we do have some injury concerns,
2: wouldn't be the worst idea. So your team unleash Dest Taylor, or, or at least give him an opportunity to do more of those attacking things more consistently. I uh, maybe like I think it depends on how he looks in that spot sure, because sure. I don't feel
1: fully comfortable like with him being given that attacking freedom right now but what we saw in this game I felt like was enough for me to think that could be a possibility if yeah. we need more looks out wide and I do think that's a thing we came away from this camp feeling uh I am going to talk about Tim Whale later on and I think there's other places he could be utilized but I think I think there is a gap out wide if we don't have our sort of first choice wide attackers in Pulisic and Reyna, And I think we could try some different things, especially if we have fullback depth there. And Shaq Moore is fine. DeAndre Edlin is fine. Reggie Cannon has been fine. But I don't think any of them has necessarily come in and said, yes, I can be a deputy to Seginho Dest at right back. In a way that isn't a massive drop off mm-hmm. uh, or doesn't require us kind of rethinking what that position is going to be. I don't know if that can be Joe Scally, but I think it could be worth finding out if it could be because that gives us more
2: options further up the pitch. I would be very interested to see this happen. And I I chose my words somewhat carefully there because, like you, Taylor, we don't know if this would work with the U.S. men's national team. right? I think your response was perfect. Maybe. That's the perfect word to use here, right? Because we just have no idea. We haven't seen it before. We don't know how it would work within the the other elements that are happening on the field at the same time for the U.S. men's national team. But would it be interesting? Yeah, absolutely. Dest has a lot of skills that can translate into – a number of different positions. And really, if you think about it, when the U.S. advance into the final third, if they're advancing systematically and, and somewhat slowly in possession and building up and, and moving into that space as a unit, there's probably not all that much difference in Dest's positioning, right? It might look a little narrower at times if Scaly or the right back, I'll just say the right back for the U.S. national team, is overlapping instead of that right back being Dest, he's done inside more. But either way, if we think back to that Costa Rica game for the U.S. and other games in Greg Berhalter's tenure, The players rotate, right? I think the rotation's actually gone down a little bit over the years. But players are still moving into different spaces. Des spent a lot of time inside in that Costa Rica game in the half space just from a slightly deeper position. So I think he could do a lot of damage in the final third in that spot. The one, I guess, maybe just one of the hesitations I have about this is it's a lot different playing fullback than it is is playing winger, right? There's the obvious defensive things that are different, right? You're defending a different space a lot of the times. You are you need to be connected to different players first and foremost. If you're a fullback, you got to stay connected to your center backs. If you're a winger, your movements look a little bit different and your responsibilities defensively are a little bit different. But even in possession, which is, I think, where we can all agree Dest's strengths really lie, playing fullback can be different than playing as a winger because the timing's a little bit different. How often do we see fullbacks make late uh, late arriving overlapping runs right? versus how often do we see wingers do that stuff? We don't see wingers do those things very often at all because they're already high. And so I do wonder if Dest has the sheer speed and quickness and athleticism to play as a winger in a spot where you don't get the advantage of timing, where you don't get to choose your spots and choose your runs to take advantage of maybe a scattered defense. Instead, as a winger... You have to be the initiator in a lot of moments, and I don't know if Dest has the skill set to do that, but again, circling back, Taylor, I'd be interested to see it happen at some point, even if I don't think, and I think you're with me on this, even if I don't think it's very likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I basically agree with everything you just said. I don't think it's likely to happen. I wouldn't
1: mind seeing us like experiment with that, maybe in a friendly when there's less on the line, but I think, Joe, the largest point that I agree with that I hadn't really thought about is the difference in what you're doing as a wide attacker versus a an attacking fullback yeah because in this game he does get the assist for that third goal uh and it is a a a good pass he's able to find coutinho who is wide open but it's still a sort of disguised pass in the moment a clever bit of awareness from dest that finds coutinho and so that had me thinking like oh he can be this creative player in and around the box except that to your point i believe that is after he made a late arriving underlap uh, and ends up getting the ball. But even so, it still stands to your point that he's not then like a primary creator. He's not being tasked with facilitate attacks, build the attacks yourself. It is sort of contribute to the attacks when you arrive. So maybe it's like with Joe Scaly, we want to see him contribute more to the attacks. And with Sergio Dest, we want to prove if he keeps playing this position, we want, we want to see him prove that he can facilitate and create attacks on his own. And maybe that would make us feel more comfortable gambling with him as a right winger for the u.s in a meaningful game as opposed to a friendly but for now i think it's just it gives us things to talk about and interesting things at that so i appreciate ronald kumann for for (laughs) trying something different if nothing else joe we've talked about two players still several to be discussed but first let's take one more break
0: this episode is brought to you by michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to dot com slash courtside to learn more. All right,
1: Joe Lowry, we are back. We have, uh, two players playing in England, one player playing in France still to be discussed so why don't we start with an English player an English bass player, Joe, where are we going next?
2: We are going to Josh Sargent and Norwich. Taylor we've been we've been pretty positive on this show so far. Oh, it's time boy. to bring the mood down just a little bit. Josh Sargent started and played 76 minutes in Norwich's 0-0 draw with Brighton over the weekend. Sargent wasn't called up to the U.S. men's national team in October, rightfully so, I believe so I, I was curious to see how he's doing now. And there were some good things in this performance from Josh Sargent, some things we've seen before, but there were also some somewhat predictably bad things that happened in this game for Josh Sargent, specifically related to his finishing. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Sargent started up top next to Timu Puki in Norwich's 5-3-2 shape, which is a forward front that does make me excited within the context of how much you can be excited about Norwich. I I like both (laughs) of those players. I like
0: watching those players.
2: I mean, I know what you mean. That's still a low-key roast. Well done, Joe. Yeah, I do what I can. Uh, So there were some interesting bits about this game. Uh, Norwich did a lot of mid-block defending. Sargent did some high pressing, but he just mostly did a lot of hard running, battling in midfield, all of those things that you love it when your striker has to be doing. That's sarcasm in case that didn't come across. Sargent's a guy, Taylor, who who thrives in the scrap, right? He's not the strongest guy. He's not the fastest guy, but he's willing to be aggressive and, and he's willing to fight for the ball. There are some challenges, though, when those are your strikers' primary attributes, at least I would argue. Uh, right now, we're seeing a lot of those things from Sargent and a lot less goal scoring or threatening in the box. And in this game, as I mentioned, he had some great hold-up moments, he had some great scraps but he really struggled in goal-scoring situations. And there's a couple of these clips. I sent you both of yeah. them, Taylor. The first one's really bad. The second one's subtly bad, not mm-hmm. quite as bad. Uh, it's it's not ideal stuff, <laughs> Taylor Rockwell.
1: I appreciate how much you're trying to save this. Uh, no, I would say neither one of them was particularly great. And I watched most of his touches in this game, I would agree. And most of his... Uh, non touches in this game. My introduction to you was going to be Joe. Do you think he prefers Josh attacking duel sergeant or Josh off the ball <laughs> movement sergeant? Because those were his two most consistent actions in this game. Oh my god, that's so good. But, I, but like both the, both of those speak to how much he's being asked to do off the ball. He's being asked to kind of fight for loose balls, fight for throws, fight for long balls, but then also do a lot of running to open up space to try to get on the end of a ball or to just ha- like harass opponents. And I, I wanna pause there to ask you, Joe. You were saying that you felt like you, you saw him kind of being up for that, being willing to scrap. And I'm I'm genuinely asking you, you this, because this might just be my memory lying to me. I sort of had this idea of Sargent as being essentially like okay with being asked to do that, but I don't see him being that type of player who like like really enjoys those 50 50 clashes really wants to win those headers and it's like that's my thing I'm gonna body everybody I'm gonna win this ball I'm gonna hold it up it almost feels to me at times like he's sort of like yeah okay I can do that I guess and there's there isn't that intensity that I think you need if you're gonna be in those physical clashes so I pause there to then ask you do you feel up front like you saw more of that intensity that willingness to work to run to go at people to make something happen in this game
2: I think so. And and Taylor, honestly, I think I've seen that in the last bit for Sargent. In my head, in my head, US U-20, Josh Sargent, 2017 summer, Josh Sargent is kind of a different player than he is now. Because in 2017, when he was playing at those tournaments at the the U-20 World Cup and the U-17 World Cup, the moments that stick out to me are lovely turns on the ball. and, And receiving the ball with his back to goal and quickly turning, manipulating a defender, and then firing off a really strong shot at goal. And he was this goal scorer in my mind at that point. That identity has faded, I think, for Josh Sargent, and the production bears that out as well. He now is more, I think, just this this hard-running kind of nine, where he's doing the dirty work, and, and maybe he doesn't embrace that. I don't know exactly what what his mentality is coming into these battles, but he certainly gets involved in a lot of them, or at least it feels like it does. He's getting involved, he's trying to win the ball And he is doing his best to impact games, from what I can tell. It's just, I think it's an issue when you can press and you can do a lot of the the defensive things and you can move off the ball until you get to the final third. And then what happens there? What happens in that attacking third? And that's the piece that's missing for Sargent right now. The the two bad moments that I alluded to earlier and that, that we've we've sort of discussed. I'm going to outline them right now. The first ones in the 44th minute, and Norwich win the ball in midfield from Brighton, and they have this up back and through to Sargent, who Sargent's the through at that point. He's making a run into the attack. Brighton's goalkeeper Robert Sanchez comes out of his box to clear the ball. He doesn't connect. He doesn't connect cleanly with it at all. And so the ball ends up falling to Sargent with an open net in front of him. And Sargent shoots uh, with his right foot, and it's just from outside the box, and he doesn't put enough power on it. And Joel Veltman slides in and clears the ball without a whole lot of difficulty there. This is a huge missed opportunity, right? It's nil-nil at this point. This could have been 1-0 for Norwich. This shot is not going to go in every single time, but it is still an unfortunate miss from Josh Sargent.
1: I just want to state there that for people who haven't seen it, it is, it is almost comical. Like if you haven't seen this clip, I would encourage you to try to find it. It is one of those moments when the goalkeeper comes out, doesn't make contact, as Joe said. Sargent like gets around the goalkeeper, then with an open net in front of him. And when it, Joe, if you sent me that clip without a caption to it, I would have been like, "Oh, Josh Sargent scored. That's awesome. There's no way he doesn't score this goal." and then the way he passes it he i think you said shoots i would say it is more of a pass. passes it carefully yeah. because i think he's very Concerned about having an open net and overhitting it or hitting it wide. And I think anytime you have to kind of pause and think about what you're doing as you're doing it, it runs the risk of overthinking. And I think he does that here. But it's, it's, it could easily be on the like worst misses of the season list. Not because he did all this work or not because it was like an easy tap in, but just because it is so, oh, that's an open goal. Oh, he hit it on frame. Oh, that's not going fast enough. Oh, it's been cleared off the line. Oh, no.
2: This is the kind of situation that, I, let me, let me back up. I'm not a good soccer player. Uh, I have the yips in front of goal a, a lot of the time, and this is the kind of situation that I dread to be in if I'm playing soccer because I don't have the confidence or the skill set to actually put the ball in the back of an open net, e- even from this distance that Sargent is shooting from. But Sargent is not me. Sargent is is good at a lot of things in soccer, and so the fact that this one doesn't go in is it's tough. Veltman again just doesn't even he doesn't even have to get at the to top speed no. to clear this ball. So it is a really unfortunate miss. The second one Taylor comes in the 48th minute, and uh, this is after Lewis Dunk Brighton center center back in their back three in this game. Hits a pass off of a, a teammate's back, a midfield teammate's back. And so the ball the ball falls to Timu Puki. In the attacking half for Norwich, Puki dribbles forward, finds Sargent running to his right and, and plays him through in behind the back line. At this point, there are three defenders closing in on Sargent, but he totally has time to take a touch, take a directional first touch and fire off a shot on goal, from a better shooting position at least, than in this first miss that we just talked about. But the first touch is poor, Taylor. It gets away from him, Brighton slide in, poke the ball away, and that goal-scoring chance is gone. That's two chances, Sargent's best two chances of this game, that were squandered. And that's that's the problem with him as a nine right now. That's why he's not involved with the U.S. men's national team is he's not dangerous enough in and around the box in a goal-scoring sense. He can do a lot of other really nice things, hold it, play get a wonderful turn as this game, uh, as his time on the field at least expired in this game. Had uh, a nice turn and shot as well earlier on in the first half. Some good moments, but when you actually need him to produce in the final third and inside the box, it's not happening right now, and it hasn't been happening for too long at this point.
1: And... The major problem there becomes that this is all for a Norwich team that have scored two goals on the season and have two points on the season from their first eight games, meaning they're bottom of the table. And so you can think maybe he'll get a few more opportunities, but if there's another open goal miss or if there's another shot that should have happened that doesn't come off or another bad touch that prevents him from getting a good shot – If you're the manager, I don't think you can really like delay some of the decisions. And I think that then lends itself to, uh, you know what, I'm going to see who else can go there. And so I think Sargent has an opportunity here and can turn things around. I think it's just, you know, getting that. Confidence back, getting that belief that you can sort of make things happen and making little adjustments to your game that means, oh, I completed this pass. Oh, I got that touch that I wouldn't have gotten before. Oh, I made that guy dive in and now I've got a little bit of space. The more you can build your confidence little by little, the better you're going to be. And it just seems right now, Sargent and Norwich as a whole don't have a ton of confidence. So I don't, it's not as though everything else is working for them except for Josh Sargent. It seems like many things are not working and that might be part of why he's not working. But I, I worry that he doesn't have a ton of time to figure things out because Norwich don't have a ton of time to figure things out
2: if they would like to stay in the Premier League. I worry the same thing, Taylor. And yeah. this, is not, this is not the end of Sargent's career. He's, what, no. 21? Right. And so I am being negative here because there's a lot of things to be pointed out that weren't good from Sargent in this game, but he still has a long future ahead of him. Yeah. And he, I think there's a lot of chances for him still, even even if not this season, there's a lot of time left on those legs, barring some unfortunate circumstances. So I'm not closing the book on Sargent or anything like that, but I would be surprised, barring a real reversal in form and goal scoring, if he's involved with the U.S. men's national team over these next couple of, of World Cup qualifying windows. Agreed. And
1: that takes us to our next player we're going to have a chat about, Joe, because a player that I do think could be involved and could be involved in that number nine spot in that conversation is Tim Weah, uh, who started for Lille in a 1-0 loss to uh, Clement Foote. And that's not great, certainly. uh, But it's that he starts for them in... What was effecti- effectively a four-four-two. he's part of a front two. They kind of changed it up into various looks and various phases of the game, but overall it tended to be a front two or more often way of the furthest forward uh, attacking option. And the sort of outlet for long balls and direct passes in, he would lay them off and try to kind of link up and facilitate attacking play from there. And I thought did a really good job, so much so that this is how it felt weirdly appropriate with the players I had, that if we're talking about Joe Scally could be a right back for the United States. Serginho Dest could be a right winger for the United States. Well, Timothy Weah was the other or one of the other main uh, candidates for that spot. But we don't have a ton of number nine depth exemplified by how much we're rooting for Josh Sargent to turn things around because there's not a ton of options there. But Wea in this game showed some things that I have to think, if Greg Burhalter was watching, made him think, yeah, that looks like what we need our number nine to do. Suddenly, maybe I've got more options. Taylor,
2: I've been banging the way as a nine drum for mm-hmm. a year, if not two years now. I I love everything you're saying, although I do have some slight reservations. We can talk about that yeah. later. Ignore all the, the negative things. Keep going <laughs> with the good stuff. No, I mean, it's basically the the, the two clips I sent you. It, it was not
1: a great game from Lille. And a, a thing I ended up watching more of the just extended highlights just to make sure I, I don't think this was a Timothy Weah problem. In the same way that I don't think Josh Sargent is like the Norwich problem, I think Norwich are the problem and Josh Sargent is a problem within that problem. The same goes for Lille here, where Timothy Weah did, I think, a lot of what was asked of him. As I said, he is oftentimes the furthest forward. He is stretching that line and I think has the pace to always make defenders a little bit nervous. But then, routinely, when Leo were in... In possession, but deep and under pressure, or they'd won the ball back and they didn't have many options, at least four different times in this game, they would sort of hit a hopeful pass 30 or 40 yards up the pitch to nobody, theoretically, but then suddenly Tim Way would come bombing in and make a a first-time layoff uh, laterally or backwards, but that he was clearly checking away or making that run into space for the long ball, but then correcting the run and moving to get back in to make sure that they retained possession for at least a limited amount of time. I thought that was very strong. What tended to happen then was that he would lay that ball off, turn and make another run in behind. Oftentimes, he would lay it off to a teammate who was then driving forward, and that teammate then lost the ball or would have a shot or would get it deflected out for a corner. But there wasn't a ton of interplay in the way Leo wanted to attack. But I still think Waya did... Essentially, everything that was asked of him to facilitate attacks and to try to create something, there just wasn't much to be created on the day.
2: is a clever player, right? He thinks—we yeah. talked about this with Scally earlier, the, the speed of play. Wea thinks quickly, and he combines quickly. He gets on the ball and does something. And The action isn't always the right decision, but he's moving quickly, and he's thinking quickly, and I love that. And I think that's important as a nine. So I, I like the idea of Weya impacting the game in those moments where Leo can drop in, or, or they're they're back defending in a four-four-two, and, and Weya can drop in and play a quick flick to a teammate, like you're describing, Taylor. I like all of those things. My question for you, and this is my slight reservation about yep. Leah as the 9, is I, I wonder, like we just talked about with Sargent, yep. I wonder, and I don't think we have the sample size right now, I wonder what... Weah's ability is, goal-scoring-wise, as a central nine. And in this game, his role is slightly different because he's playing in a front two for Lille relative to what he would theoretically be doing for the U.S. men's national team as a lone nine But I wonder, what is his movement like in the box? How does he create separation and space for himself inside the 18? Because we don't really see those things from him with the U.S. men's national team when he's in there because he's mostly playing out wide. And he's playing out wide slash in the half space on one side or the other. So that's my my reservation about way of playing the nine, just like I have a reservation about Dest playing as a winger. We just haven't seen enough of it for me to feel confident about it one way or the other. So if I'm being charitable, I will add
1: that I didn't see many opportunities when he could turn, like receive the ball, turn, go at the defense and try to create something. I didn't see a ton of opportunities when there was a a series of sustained passes of sustained possession for Leal. In their attacking third, that was then allowed to make runs or able to make runs or able to find space or try to create in 1v1s. I saw a lot of him linking up play, laying the ball off or like having little like flicks in behind that somebody else could run onto. Then he would turn and make that run. But as I said, didn't get on the ball a lot for that secondary chance. And that is one thing I would like to see him if we are going to have more conversations for him at the nine. And even if we're not, I think even if just he, if he is going to be one of those three main attacking players for the United States. We want to see what he can do to create goal-scoring opportunities by himself. And that means turning and going at a defense and getting around them or beating them with skill or beating them with speed or just popping up in the kind of Thomas Muller way of making that darting run to the back post when people didn't see that happening and he's there for the tap-in. That's fine too, but I think we want to see how he can create chances or finish chances in and around the area before I will be very confident that he can do the number 9 job. I saw flashes of it here, and... It might just be that it was like an off game for the team as a whole. But I want to see more of this to see what he is capable of. But that remains the big question
2: mark for me with Tim Wei as a 9. I'm totally with you. And there's no need that way. I, there's no specific need for Weah to play as a 9. Right now, there's probably more need for him to play out wide with the U.S., given the injuries we talked about at the top of the show. But it is just something to think about and to monitor as this U.S. pool continues to evolve and, and grow and even looking past the 2022 World Cup. the the pool is going to change and it's going to look a little bit different than it does now, certainly. So having players who can potentially play in different spots and bring different skill sets to those spots, I think is a big positive.
1: All right, Joe. We've talked Timothy Weah. We've got one more player to be discussed. But instead of talking about goal scoring, we're going to talk about not letting goals be scored because we're going to talk about Zach Steffen.
2: Dang right we are. Zach Steffen's second ever Premier League start. In Woo-hoo. that two-nil win over Burnley, he had one last year against Chelsea in January, and this this one this start this season was his third start of the year. Uh, but this game against Burnley was his first Premier League start of the season. So that all came about not because Stefan has overtaken Ederson in the goalkeeper uh, depth chart for Pep Guardiola, but because Ederson was unavailable after being involved in Brazil's World Cup qualifiers. Stefan was able to step into the lineup in Taylor. He played well. He wasn't tested much, which should not be a surprise given that they were playing Burnley, who are not a high-powered attacking team in the slightest. Stefan only had to make two saves, but he made both of them, and Pep had some pretty glowing things to say about Zach Stefan after the game, talking about how he's growing so much, he's growing really quickly, he's a better goalkeeper now than he was when we got him. Lots of of positive things from Pep Guardiola, who I'm sure knows how to talk to media. This was on Man City's website as well. So there is some caveats there, but still, I, I don't think there was anything really... Not to like about this performance from Zach Steffen, which is good after a start, for Costa, a start for the U.S. against Costa Rica, which didn't begin well in that game, but I think he was solid enough in that, in that match as well. I will say, um, I, did you see the like Pep's
1: follow-up comments, which I think had me a little bit concerned? Where he praised Stefan for sure, but then he added that Matt Turner would have not only made those saves but scored a goal, <laughs> which felt very specific and very centric
2: to like Major League Soccer and MLS fans. Oh, but, uh, I, I don't know what you made of that. Taylor. Oh, you, I, I was like thinking to myself, what did I miss? What, how did I not see these comments from Pep? <laughs> that is extremely well done by I you. Tried. Extremely well done. I don't like. I don't really want to have the Turner. St- I know this. Isn't where you're taking us. I don't really nah. want to have the Turner Stefan debate or conversation right now. I do think, though, it makes sense to go through the big save that Stefan made in this game. Yeah. The first one was the one that is the one that I want to go into in more detail. The second one just came in the 57th minute and it was a very easy save. The ball from Ashley Barnes, the shot from Barnes was tame, it was on the ground. Stefan saved it quite easily. But the save, and I sent this clip to you, Taylor, it's also flowing around on Twitter. The big save in this game comes in the 22nd minute. Burnley have the ball, and they play forward. It's a really nice ball forward into Maxwell Cornet, who's running in behind Man City's back line. And Cornet gets a bit of separation from João Cancelo, gets the ball on his right foot at the top of the box. And as this play is developing, Stefan has stepped forward to the penalty spot to try and close the angle. He does that. He gets low. He puts his right leg at an angle as well to close the gap between his legs. He gets his right arm out to make himself big. And I believe it's hard to tell from from that moment i sent you taylor but there's another clip that was in, in the next sequence for city you can tell in the replay i think at least the ball comes off of stefan's right thigh it doesn't really matter if it comes off the arm or the thigh I'm, I'm sure it comes off the thigh but the ball bounces away from goal towards the field of play corney actually gets on the ball again and shoots and it goes out for a corner a goal kick excuse me but it's a great save from zach stefan technically it is a, a very strong save from him and you love to see that stuff he's had some good saves for city in other competitions this year But coming up like this in a a pretty big moment in a Premier League game, it's exactly what folks like me who look at the shot-stopping numbers that aren't as good for Zach Steffen relative to other keepers in the U.S. pool, it's exactly what I want to see from Zach Steffen on a game-to-game basis, and I'm glad we got to see it in this game. So I love the save. I
1: love the position he takes to make the save because when that ball is played in, I think a less experienced or more aggressive, I'm-going-to-make-a-name-for-myself goalkeeper tries to get on the end of that or thinks in the moment i can win this ball first and just clear it and it does have that trajectory it does seem to have that angle but as we know it doesn't it it holds up much more and i love that i did not see a stefan come sprinting into the screen and make a slide tackle. but that could have been a red card or it could have been just a whiff entirely uh a la the brighton goalkeeper i like that he comes off his line he's about 12 yards out And then he gets into position as the attacker advances. He maybe takes a couple more little steps. But for the most part, he has advanced to where he wants to be, but we don't see him backpedal, which to me means it wasn't like he ran out, realized, oh, I'm not going to get that, and backpedaled, and now he's lost some of that sort of ability to read the situation because he's now backpedaling and trying to read. Instead, he's gotten the position he needs to be, he's the distance he wants to be, and then he can sort of see what the attacker's doing, see what Corne's trying to do, and make those little adjustments, take those few little steps, shift to one side, get a hand up, and make that save. I thought it was... It was pretty solid from start to finish there for Zach Steffen.
2: He controls his box in that moment, and there's a yep. few other moments in this yep. game where he controls his box. Comes off his line in the 34th minute to head the ball away, a la that goal sequence for Costa Rica. This time, Steffen actually fully clears it. He punches the ball away Positive. off of a corner kick in the 45th minute. Comes off his line again in the 67th minute to head the ball away. A lot of strong moments in terms of his ability to control that 18-yard box. He, hey, it's a nice passes as well. 31 of 36 in this game. Completed all of his short passes, all of his mid-range passes. 5 for 10 in his long-range passes, which is understandable to an extent. So I don't have a lot else to say on Stefan in this game. He passed the test that was in front of him. I don't know when the next test he's going to get is going to be. But uh, a lot of positives from him in this game. And when was that?
1: That, that save, Joe? Do you remember, roughly? The
2: save, is, uh, the save we talked about in
1: detail was the 22nd minute, too. Right. So at that point, they are up 1-0. Bernardo Silva scores in the 12th. But if he doesn't make that save, and I don't think it would be wholly his fault because it's a 1v1, those can go a number of different ways— but it's a different game. It's one-to-one, uh, and and we then do get the Kevin De Bruyne second goal later on. Maybe we don't still get that. Maybe City have to play, the, change the way they're playing. Maybe they have to exert themselves a bit more to get that result. But it's just those little things that if you're a manager, I have to believe you appreciate a player who can make the play that's needed to keep things as they are, and in the end, you get more of a comfortable result for it. So I think... Big thumbs up to Zach Steffen. I don't know if it has any impact on the depth chart for the U.S. national team, nor do I care to speculate because that one's pretty open and I think will be for a while. But I will say I liked everything I saw from Zach Steffen in this one. I'm guessing Pep Guardiola did as well.
2: Here, here, Taylor. I don't have anything else to add on. Steffen, right. Do you have any other thoughts on him or the rest of this weekend for Americans in action anywhere? Nope, just that I like talking about them because it's fun <laughs> to see how many there are and how many exciting things they're doing, positive or
1: negative. It's still worth discussing because it gives us a better picture, a better understanding of what is happening. And with all that said, maybe I will pay a bit more attention to Matt Miazga and try to figure out what's going on there. But for now, uh, Joe, I feel like we've gone plenty long on the Americans in action this past weekend. We have a lister question show coming up. I am not on that one. You all recorded that one
2: this morning. We reco- recorded it Tuesday morning. Joe, how'd that go? Uh, it went very well. Good questions. Uh, I learned some things about stadiums that I didn't know or, or countries that don't use the same stadium as often as I thought they did. Uh, and lots of other good questions. Graham got to talk about Scotland and Ryan made some jokes. Really, what else can you, can you ask for? Shocking. Uh, Yeah, so we've got that one. That will
0: be
1: out uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. We have a Champions League review on Thursday. We've got Allocation Disorder on Friday. A strong week for the uh, Total Soccer Show team. For now, Joe Lowry, once again, thank you very much for taking all the time to watch all these players and talk about all these players with me today. You got it, Taylor listeners sincerely thank you all for always tuning in for always listening for getting in touch to let us know your thoughts on the players letting us know which players we should be paying attention to we always very much appreciate that you listen that you support the show the way you do and that you keep supporting the show the way you do and we hope that you all keep doing so and with that said we'll talk to you all again very soon